This is Pastor Darren at Racine Bible Church, and you are listening to our Advent series, Fall on Your Knees. Good morning, church. It has been a, a great morning already from the preschoolers and the music and the baptisms. Don't you just love to hear stories of God's amazing grace, right? And now we get to turn our attention to God's Word and continue our Christmas series entitled Fall on Your Knees. If you've been doing the Churchwide Advent book, you know that our theme this week has been Jesus, our Emmanuel. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Jesus is with us and he brings great comfort and hope. And there's a lot of reasons why I'm excited to study this with you today. But maybe the, the main one is that there is a big difference between our idealized Christmas and our actual experience of Christmas. Maybe it's all the Christmas marketing or all the hype. But there's this ideal in our heads of what Christmas is supposed to be, right? Which is what? Christmas is supposed to be happy and merry and full of peace. And it's supposed to be awesome and perfect. And that idealistic sentiment slips into our expectations this time of the year. And even if your Christmas is great, it's hard not to get to December 26 and at least feel a little bit of a letdown, right? But truth be told, for many of us, our actual experience of Christmas is very different than that idealized picture. Christmas makes us painfully aware of broken relationships in our life, of friends, family, and how those relationships aren't right. We miss people that have died and are no longer at our Christmas get-togethers. And the holidays tend to put a, a spotlight right on sensitive problems in our life, right? Things like loneliness or despair or money problems. And there can be hints or even just bursts of sadness and disappointment all throughout the month of December. And honestly, a lot of us in this room and a lot of people not in this room struggle with that gap, that gap between the idealized Christmas and what our actual experience of Christmas is. And the great news is that the Bible steps into that gap. The Bible doesn't hand us a bunch of Christmas cliches. The Bible doesn't give us a heartwarming story. The Bible, if we really look at it, gets into the gritty reality of real life and shows us Jesus, our Emmanuel. It shows us how Jesus is God with us and how that actually makes a real difference in our lives. And today we'll see how Jesus exposes our bogus Christmas expectations And shows us that his presence is enough. So let's get after it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2 is where we will be. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the chairs, uh, underneath the chairs in front of you. Matthew 2 is found on pages 807 and 808. While you're turning there, you have my permission to passively, passive-aggressively hand a Bible to someone near you who's not turning to Matthew 2. Everybody needs to have God's Word open. Pull it up on your phone. You need to see it. God's Word is so important, and I want you to follow along with us as we go through this chapter. Matthew 2 is God's Word. And before we look at Matthew 2, let me pray for us now. Father, help us now as we study your Word. Help us to understand it and to believe it. We want to fall on our knees before Jesus. So take away distractions. May your 
Spirit, stir our affections and may we grow deeper in love with Jesus, our Emmanuel. And Father, help me to speak. May my sin not hinder your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. At Christmas, it's common to read Matthew 2. If you've been around church world at all in your life in December, you're at least somewhat familiar of this story of the wise men. Uh, But usually we only look at the first half of the story and we skip the second part because it's brutal. But today we're going to look at the whole chapter. We'll go verse by verse through it and I'll explain it as we go because sometimes with these Christmas stories, wrong ideas of what actually happened kind of slip in and so we need to look at the actual text. And then we're going to zoom in on a a couple of verses at the end and then um, come away with three brief takeaways. So Matthew 2 verse 1, take a look. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The story starts with the birth of Jesus. He is born to Mary and Joseph and he's born, like we just sang, in the little town of Bethlehem. And at the time this story takes place, Jesus is a few weeks or maybe even a few months old. It's past the day of his birth, but he's still just an infant. And the story doesn't really start with them. It actually starts not in Bethlehem, but just up the road from Bethlehem, five miles in the capital city of Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem that these wise men show up. Who are the wise men? They were a group of religious, political, academic dignitaries from the empire to the east. Now, the Roman Empire was in charge of much of the world, including Bethlehem and Jerusalem, But the wise men came from the neighboring empire to the east. And why did they come to Jerusalem? Well, because, it says, they saw a star. And, we don't know exactly how, they connected it to the birth of this Jewish king. And they knew the star wasn't just any star, that this baby wasn't just any baby, but that this was a supernatural work of God, that this baby was God. How do we know that? Look at what it says. It says that they came to Israel, why? To fall on their knees and worship this divine king. And by the way, Jerusalem was a big city, but this visit from the wise men would have generated a huge reaction. Nowadays, modern nativities kind of picture three guys on camels, but the actual event was pretty large scale. A group of dignitaries like this would have traveled in a large group. There would have been a huge entourage of rulers and bodyguards and servants and gifts and animals. I remember uh, a while back, one of the presidents came to Racine, and it was a major deal. There's roadblocks and police escorts and limos, helicopters, secret service. And the wise men entourage, it would have generated a similar stir in Jerusalem. And part of the reason for that is that the wise men are coming expecting a major celebration. An heir to the throne was a major event in those days. And especially a special divine king like this one. And so the wise men show up to the capital city expecting a big party and no one knows what they're talking about. And so they're asking around, where is this king? Where is this king? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, King Herod, who was king of Jerusalem at the time, hears about the wise men and he is panicked for a few reasons. One, Herod was a paranoid and brutally savage king. We don't see that in our text here because every first century reader would have known exactly who Herod was. Right, like when I say the name Hitler, I don't have to tell you who that is or that he's bad, you get it. 
Herod was known for being horrible and wicked and jealous and overly suspicious and extremely violent. He had, on multiple occasions, killed various members of his own family, including three of his own sons, because he was afraid that they were out to get him. And so to hear this new thread of this newborn king would have made a paranoid Herod absolutely hysterical. And another part of Herod's panic is that he is just learning about this newborn king. Here is Herod, king of Jerusalem, unaware of what's going on in his own realm. And yet these foreigners and their entourage seem to know all about it. So it makes Herod look foolish and stupid and incompetent. And on top of that, it's clear that these foreigners have aligned themselves with this new king and that there could be a potential conflict brewing. A historical note for you is that early in Herod's reign, Herod fought and drove out the empire of people just to the east of him. And now, perhaps, in Herod's mind, they're back and connected to a new threat to the throne. And so Herod is on edge and the whole city is on edge with him. So what does he do? Verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here it calls all his top people together. He gets the top politicians, the top religious scholars together. He wants to figure out what these wise men are talking about. Where is this Messiah? Where is this king? Where is he supposed to be born? And these advisors point Herod to the Old Testament book of Micah. In Micah, they tell Herod that there's this ancient prophecy about the Messiah king being born. And it says that he'll be born just down the road, five miles away in Bethlehem. And armed with that knowledge, Herod cooks up a plan. What is it? Verse 7. Then he had summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What's Herod's plan? He could lock up or execute the wise men, but he'd be risking a war with that eastern empire, so that's a no-go. He could go with the wise men to Bethlehem and snuff out the threat himself, but he'd risk the wise men getting mad at him for killing a baby and thus a conflict would start, a war would start, so that's a no-go to. So Herod secretly calls the wise men in and tells them to locate the baby and report back to him. And he tries to play the wise men with a lie. I just want to fall on my knees and worship him too. So what do the wise men do? Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men believe Herod and they leave Jerusalem. And when they do, they see the star again. But this time, it's moving and it leads them to the exact place that Jesus is. And what's their reaction to it? Look at verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I don't know how you would describe total ecstasy, but that's got to be it. There are so many superlatives in there talking about just how giddy these wise men are that they see the star and that it's leading them right to Jesus' house. And what do they do when they see Jesus? 
It's our theme this Christmas. They fall on their knees and worship him. And they give him gifts. Gifts, not really practical for an infant, but awesome for the parents. Lavish, expensive, regal gifts showing just how much they esteem Jesus. And they maybe spend the night in Bethlehem. And while they do, the wise men get a dream, a message from God. God tells the wise men not to go back to Herod. And they obey. So they go back east the long way, not going back through Jerusalem. And this is, right, usually where we cut the story off here at the end of verse 12. But we're going to play to the end. Look at 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So the wise men aren't the only ones who get a dream from God. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, gets a dream too. It seems like from the verses, it's the very next night. And in the dream, God tells Joseph that Jesus' life is in danger from Herod. And so they need to pack up and go to Egypt. And Joseph obeys. And he and the little family leave Bethlehem that night in what must have been just a total 180 for them. Right? They relocate to Bethlehem, they have this baby, and just as life with an infant starts to settle in, here's some of the most important people in the world who show up at your door. And they give you these expensive gifts, and you're the talk of the town, and it's like, well, it's pretty great. And then that night, you get just a few hours to pack up everything you own and flee. Because not only are you a fugitive, but also someone is out to kill your baby. And through it all, God protects them even fulfills an Old Testament prophecy along the way. Now what about Herod? His reaction is awful, horrific, and shocking. Look at 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod, within a day or two of the wise men leaving, realizes they're not coming back. And the brutality of Herod reaches its low point. And in a violent, paranoid, demonic rage, he commits something that's horrific and unimaginable. He kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem to extinguish the threat. And beyond that, remember, Jesus is only a few months old at most at this point. But in Herod's rage to protect the throne, he kills all the baby boys under age three. And you see what it says? He even goes into the surrounding areas killing boys to ensure that the threat is gone. This is why we usually skip this part of the story. It's the worst part of the Christmas story, bar none. It's what's called the slaughter of the innocents, as dozens of mothers that first Christmas experienced the most gut-wrenching grief a human can experience to have their little babies executed before their eyes at the hands of a horrible world leader. And Matthew links this awful tragedy to a significant chapter in the Old Testament. Take a look at verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew connects Herod's slaughter with another dark chapter in Israel's history. 
I'm not trying to give you the most depressing Christmas sermon ever, but it's important for you to see this. You see, verse 18 is a quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. And in that verse, and in verse 18 here in Matthew 2, it says there was great weeping and lamentation at Ramah, where moms couldn't stop grieving. And what happened back then was this. Because of Israel's sin, an enemy nation came into Israel. And they burned everybody's homes, they totally destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and then they took all the remaining Israelites to the city of Ramah, about four miles Uh, five miles north of Jerusalem, and at Ramah to totally eviscerate Israel as a nation. The enemies tore Israelite families apart. Some were killed, some were deserted, some were carried off as prisoners of war to a foreign land. And so the weeping back in Jeremiah 31 is mothers, weeping, refusing comfort because they are seeing their boys go off as POWs, knowing they'll never see them. And Matthew picks up on that verse and puts it here and shows how that prophecy is now fulfilled by Herod's execution order. The rest of the chapter goes on. We could read it, but for time, I'll just sum it up and tell you what happens. Within weeks of this event, Herod dies. And Joseph and Mary and Jesus head back from Egypt, back towards Bethlehem, only to find that one of Herod's sons has taken Herod's place. And so they go to the northern part of Israel, where Herod's son isn't in power, and that's where Jesus grows up. And that's it. That's Matthew 2. And you can see it in your Bible if you've got it open. Matthew 3 starts with Jesus' adult life. So that's the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. What can we take from this sad account? Three takeaways today. There's notes in your bulletin if you want to write them down. Three takeaways. Number one, Emmanuel's presence doesn't resolve grief. Number one, Emmanuel's presence doesn't resolve grief. Emmanuel has come. Jesus is here. And yet, sadness and grief remain. As we've just seen this First Christmas isn't merry or full of cheer. It's dark and full of grief. And from Joseph and Mary fleeing Egypt to the families mourning lost children, Jesus has come, but grief remains. And it remains unresolved. This story makes that clear. And so one obvious takeaway from the story is that Jesus' coming, his presence, doesn't resolve grief and sadness. And this is a reality that can get lost at Christmas. And we can tend to gloss over pain and overemphasize the idealized Christmas. The merriness of Christmas is more from the culture around us than from the Bible. We watch George Bailey lose $8,000. And then he realizes, after all, oh, my life is valuable. And he gets all the money he needs, and it's a wonderful life for him. And the Hallmark Channel does what it can to pump out the message that whatever your heart aches for, Christmas will bring it to you. And every store that we go into, what's Andy Williams singing to us? It's the most wonderful time of the year. And we believe it. We buy into it. And especially as Christians, we think, well, well, well we've got Jesus, so of course everything should be perfect at Christmas. And that's just not true. God's word does not say that. Jesus has not promised to give you $8,000. Jesus does not promise to give you whatever your heart aches for. Jesus does not promise that this will be the most wonderful time of the year. He doesn't. 
Grief and suffering and sadness are rooted in sin. And sin has not yet been finally dealt with. Not yet. Until it is forever done away with, grief and suffering and sadness remain. This might be an uncomfortable takeaway for some of us, but for others, I hope that it's a relief. Some of us might be uncomfortable with this, that Emmanuel's coming doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't solve all the problems, that things are left unresolved and undealt with. Let me say a couple of things to that discomfort. One, this isn't the whole story, that grief remains unresolved. But it is part of the story. Grief and lament are a big part of the human experience and a big part of the Bible. The biggest book in the Bible is what? Psalms, the one right in the middle. And what's the biggest theme in Psalms? Lament. Grief and sadness are part of the story. We don't need to whitewash it out. And also, life is pain. Life is hard. I mean, don't you know why Jesus came? Why did Emmanuel come? Jesus did not come to give us an easy life. He didn't come to give us pain-free circumstances. He didn't come to give us the Lexus with the bow. Jesus came to deal with sin and the consequences of sin. Things like sadness and grief, suffering and pain. And so let's not give off a false version of Christianity. Hey, come to Jesus and everything in your life will be great. Jesus came to deal with grief and sadness, but it's not yet resolved. And even as Christians, and sometimes especially as Christians, following Jesus means our lives are filled with more grief, not less. But for some of you, though, I hope that this takeaway is a relief. For many, the holidays are hard. But when you see everyone else enjoying the most wonderful time of the year, that's doubly hard. And it can make you feel like a second-class person, even in church. And it can lead you to wrongly think, ah, I must not really love Jesus, or else my Christmas would be happier. Or maybe if, if God loved me more, then uh, my Christmas wouldn't be so hard. And that's not the case at all. Even the first Christmas was punctuated with grief. You don't need to pretend that sadness isn't there. You don't need to try to sweep grief under the rug and put a brave face on it. Emmanuel's presence doesn't resolve grief. But number two, Emmanuel's presence means he is with us. Emmanuel's presence means he is with us. After reading the story, you may cynically ask, where is God in all this? Like, where is he at? And the answer would be, look at the text. He's there. God is with them. God is present, and his presence makes the difference. God leads the wise men to Jesus. God provides Joseph and Mary with rich gifts. God protects the wise men and Mary and Joseph and Jesus from Herod's murderous plot. And God even gives a word of hope to those grieving families. I'll explain that in a minute. The story here in Matthew 2 just hints at the impact of Emmanuel's presence. God with us. Why is Jesus' presence so important? There's a million reasons. But here's one, and it's linked to what we're talking about today. Jesus came so that we would be united to him, that we could have a relationship with him, so that he could be with us, we could be with him, and live with us. Why is that so important? Because when life is hard, when grief hits, the worst part of suffering, along, along with the loss, is the loneliness. A few things isolate us, like grief and suffering and pain. And sometimes when life is hard, people avoid us. It's not, they, don't, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. 
And sometimes when life is hard, uh, we, we just feel like we get left behind because it seems like everyone else's life is easier. They're just enjoying life. They don't, when life is hard, it just seems like nobody really knows what's, what's going on here. You can't really understand what happened. And, and you just start to spiral down. Pain and suffering and grief are isolating. And into that sadness and into that isolation steps our Emmanuel, Jesus. Jesus knew loneliness. Obviously, we've seen today, his first few months on the planet, his family, his existence was a lonely one. In life, Jesus always had time for the brokenhearted, for the hurting, the weak, the sad. From the woman at the well to the woman with the bleeding issue to the unclean lepers and on and on. He always cared for the hurting. And Jesus especially knew loneliness on the cross as we just saw a couple of weeks ago in ABF. At his death, Jesus knew the deepest kind of loneliness that there is. Something that we will never know. When he was separated from his father, he was forsaken by God, taking our sins so that we could always be with him. And never be alone. Suffering is bad enough, but it is impossible when you're alone. Jesus' birth, the birth of Emmanuel, demonstrates that we are never alone. Because Jesus was born, because he lived and died and rose again, Emmanuel will always be with us. God is always present, even in our darkest hour, at our lowest point, Emmanuel is there, present with us, in ways that no human can mimic, hearing us better than any earthly friend ever could, loving us better than we could even love ourselves. Emmanuel's presence doesn't resolve grief, but Emmanuel's presence means Jesus is with us. And lastly, Emmanuel's presence means hope is certain. Number three, Emmanuel's presence means hope is certain. What hope? could you give to those mothers on that first Christmas? Or, or what hope could you give to those families that were split apart at Rama uh, back in Jeremiah? What hope could you give? I know we just talked about the importance of presence and being there, but oh, what could you say? God has a plan. God's trying to teach you something through this. God will work it for good. It's a blessing in disguise. That won't work. I mean, does it even sound like it will work? That, that will not work. That's, I guess some of those are true or maybe even well-meaning, but that won't work. But in Jeremiah 31, God offers those moms and those families hope. In the very next verse, in fact, I couldn't believe it when I read it. Jeremiah 31, 15 is the verse that we have here in Matthew 2, verse 18. They say the same thing. Mom's refusing comfort because her kids are taken off into exile. But do you know what Jeremiah 31, 16 says? You can look it up for yourself, but I'll read it for you. God says, there is hope for your future. God says, don't weep anymore. I will bring your children back. I will come and bring them home. Hope, God says, is certain. It's a jaw-dropping promise, an amazing reality in Jeremiah 31. God gives those families real and certain hope. What hope does God give to us today? Whether your life is pretty easy or whether it's really difficult, what hope does God give to you? It's not explicitly in Matthew 2, but it's hinted here. Our hope is 
life. Life with Emmanuel, Jesus living with us forever. And not just living with us in our hearts, as great as that is, but living with us face to face forever. And all the sad things, all the things that grieve us now will get undone. Every wrong, every hurt, every pain that we've experienced, totally erased and turned to joy. He'll wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, no more grief, and we will be with Jesus forever. That's the reason we celebrate Christmas, because Emmanuel is here. And our hope is that, yes, Emmanuel is present with us now, as we just saw, but one day we will be with him in his presence, fully and finally, forever and ever. That's our hope. And that's why it's so important to anchor our hope there. If you're on a boat and you're coming back into land, you anchor the boat to something that is certain. Right? You tie the rope to, to the dock so that you don't lose your boat. Right? You don't tie it to a seashell. You don't tie it to the water. Right? You anchor it to what is certain. Even though we should anchor our hope to the certainty of being in Emmanuel's presence forever, what do we like to do as people? We like to anchor our hopes to seashells and water. We like to anchor our hopes to the uncertainties of this life. We anchor our hopes to maybe this year Christmas will be great. Maybe this year I won't have any problems. The money won't be tight. I won't get sick. I won't have any suffering. That relationship that will totally satisfy me will come. We know from experience these anchors will not hold And the birth of Jesus reminds us to anchor our hopes in what is certain. Emmanuel's presence now and in eternity. Evil will not have the last word. That snake Satan will not win. Grief and death will not prevail. Emmanuel has come and we will be with him forever. That is our hope and that hope is certain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't hand us cliches, pat us on the head, and tell us to have a Merry Christmas. I thank you that you address the problems of real life and that you give us real and certain hope through the coming of Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. God, I want to pray specifically for people in this room who are hurting and who are suffering, who this Christmas is difficult. I pray that you would be near to them, that they would sense your presence in a special way and that they would anchor their hopes in the certainty of seeing Jesus. And God, may they even reach out to someone else for prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.